This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us from Big Bad Toronto is Doug Hoyce. Uh, Doug is a co-founder of Hoyce, Michaelis & Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. In his 30 years as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee, he's personally helped over 10,000 folks solve their debt problems and rebuild their financial future. He's pretty passionate uh, as an advocate for ensuring that people find the right solution for debt problems. He's interviewed in all kinds of media, including this show. Thank you very much, Doug. And shares his knowledge and expertise in a lot of common uh, financial myths and mistakes. He's been on CBC, Global News, Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, Business News, and so on and so on, even Huffington Post. So he's everywhere, which is great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Doug. Great to be with you, Elaine. So uh, we're going to talk about an interesting study uh, that your firm undertook, all about millennials. Uh, it's called the Millennials Debt Study. And I, when I saw that this is what we were talking about, I thought, what a great idea, because um, depending on how old one how old you are, how old I am. I have a particular view of how millennials view the world, and I'm really interested to see if that's true or if I've just bought into a stereotype. And, you know, I, I worry about them in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to, to financial stuff and money and debt and all that. Yeah, and I'm not a mind reader, so I'm not going to tell you how somebody else thinks. But what we did in this study was look at the actual data. So as you said, we're a firm of licensed insolvency trustees based here in Ontario. And so we took all the data from everybody who filed a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy with us over the last many years. We've been doing this study since 2011. And the overall study we call is it's Joe Detter. But this year we focused much more on millennials. And we define millennials as people who are, you know, roughly born between 1981 and 1996. So sort of, you know, 22 to 37 years old. And that's kind of an arbitrary definition, but that's the one that, that we used. And we compared them to other age groups, you know, like seniors and boomers and that sort of thing. And, uh, I mean, ultimately, at, at the core, we're all the same. I mean, we all want to have a good job. We all have, you know, credit card debt and things like that. But millennials are faced with some specific challenges that older generations don't see. And I think your point about... Um, and really what you were saying is it's hard to understand what someone else is going through unless you've walked in their shoes. And so it's very easy if you're a baby boomer or maybe even someone retired to say, ah, those millennials today, I mean, they're always complaining about this, that, the other thing. I mean, I got a job, I worked, I didn't have all these problems, yada, yada, yada. And okay, but let's look at some actual facts here. So the biggest problem many millennials have today is student loan debt. 
And that's very easy for a baby boomer or a senior to say, well, I mean, when I went to school, I got a job. I paid for my school. What's your problem here, right? Because is that, it's was that not... a good impersonation I did there of, yeah, a, of was, an old person? It was, it was very good. It was very I, good, I Doug. But, I mean, the, you're absolutely right. But the situation is so completely different. I, When I went to school, I didn't have to pay multiples of thousands of dollars, depending on what I was studying, uh, per semester or per year compared to what today's uh, students are paying. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And so, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you how old I am, but I graduated from university in 1987, so you can do the math. I know, I'm I'm not a young man. I'm not a young man. (laughs) And so when, when I went to the University of Toronto, and I'm an accountant, so I took accounting courses, uh, my tuition was about a thousand bucks a year. So for all the courses, Doug. The, for all the courses, for all the, yeah, not wow. per course, per course, for a whole year, not yeah. just for a term, like right. for the whole year. Well, it's and interesting, so, Doug, because I graduated in 2002, uh, and my tuition was about $5,000 for all the courses. So it went up a factor of five, but it's even worse now. Yeah, yeah, and today, for a basic Bob education, you know, again, taking accounting or something really easy where there's, it's not very expensive, there's no lab work or anything like that, you know, so maybe it's 7000 bucks. But then, of course, you've got all the, the other stuff on top of it. So when I went to school, it was mathematically possible to get a summer job, mm-hmm. earn enough money to pay your tuition. I could get a part-time job during the year to pay for my you know, books and incidentals. My family helped out with living expenses. I didn't have to get any debt. Well, today, like you said, 7000 bucks is kind of the base number for tuition. And then when you add living expenses and books and everything else on top of that, it's a lot more. And if you want to take a real course, like not accounting, but engineering or something, mm-hmm. then you can easily be looking at sixteen or $18,000. Well, tell me how the math works with me getting a, a minimum wage job during the summer. There's no way I can generate that kind of money. So unless my family has money or unless I qualify for scholarships, I'm getting a student loan. And as a result, we're seeing more and more people graduating with student loans. And therefore, they're starting off behind where us older people started many years ago. I think it's a really valid point, a super valid point. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, too, where millennials get into that, uh, not habit, but have that opportunity to then go to their boomer parents and uh, secure or ask for support in some way. So, you know, lots of folks are living at home still, and for very good reason. Yes, and debt becomes normalized. It just exactly. becomes a thing, yeah. right? And so, you know, my father, who's now in his 80s, he, he didn't have to have much of a mortgage when he bought his first house, you know, 50 years ago for $30,000 or whatever it cost. Yeah. Whereas today, and I mean, you know this more in Vancouver than we know it in Toronto, and it's bad mm-hmm. here, is, you know, a little tiny 200 square foot house cost $19 million. Yeah. So there is, and maybe my numbers are a little off. <laughs> you might I think be I, exaggerating just I a think little. I think I got the in West Van. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think yeah. I got the gist of it. So, yeah. so there is no way you can possibly consider buying a starter home or a starter condo right. without a massive amount of debt. There's no way you can consider going to school without a bunch of debt. So debt is something that is just with us. That hasn't always been that way. That's the way it is now. And so if I'm used to having this kind of debt, I can't make ends meet. It's not that big a stretch then to be using credit cards, payday loans, other forms of debt to survive. And, and that's where we find ourselves today. 
And, and Doug, coming to your to your study here, one of the things that really surprised me was just how much this group of clients is growing as a proportion of the people that, that file for bankruptcy. Um, you know, I was looking and you, you were saying between 2011 and 2018, well, the millennial cohort, um, they increased by 22% of the overall population. There's 22% more people as millennials, um, but the share of them filing insolvencies increased by 162%. That's a massive change. Um, so this, it, it, I think you said it's the fastest group of individuals filing insolvency right now. Fastest yeah, growing it's group. The, it's the fastest growing age group. And and you're right. And part of that is, okay, well, they're now getting older. And, and as you know, the, the perfect age to go bankrupt or file a consumer proposal or the most common age is somewhere in your mid forties, sort of 44, 45, 46. And, and I'm sure you see the same thing, Blair, where you are. And the reason for that is I've been, you know, in the workforce for 20 years. So I've had time to build up debt. Maybe my kids are, you know, still around and I'm still supporting them. My parents may be still around. Maybe I'm supporting them. They haven't, you know, left me an inheritance or anything like that. So I'm at my peak borrowing years when I'm in my mid forties. Well, now we're seeing that pushed back to millennials who are in their late twenties, early thirties, mid thirties, who are carrying all the student loan debt. So they then have to resort to things like credit cards and payday loans just to survive. And as a result, they are becoming a fast growing cohort. They aren't quite as big yet as the, the mid 40 year olds, but they are growing very fast and, and catching up very quickly. And Doug, can you, you mentioned payday loans. Can you just talk a bit on that? Because I was really surprised. It, it was almost half of the respondents in your in your study of the millennials, they had at least one payday style loan. And this is kind of, you know, it's a recent form of finance. I guess payday loans always existed, but now you've got them everywhere and every on every corner, you know, with some pretty slick branding. So what did you learn about millennials and their use of payday loans and other high interest loans? Yeah, and I would say student loans are the biggest epidemic. Payday loans or payday style loans are the second biggest epidemic. And you're right. It's uh, almost half of our millennial clients have payday loans. And if they have one payday loan, they have more than four of them. Wow. So it's not mm. just one. You you know, when you're eating a box of cookies, you don't just eat one. Well, it's kind of the same with, with payday loans. The total that they owe is almost $4,800 on these loans. And okay, you might think $4,800, that's not that big a deal. Okay, well, do the math. So, and I'm not familiar with the laws in BC, but in Ontario here, the maximum they can charge on a payday loan is $15 on every 100 borrowed. That's the so same here. Yeah. Same, same in, in yeah. British Columbia. Okay, so you, you borrow 15, you borrow 100 bucks, pay it back in two weeks, you pay back 115, then I got to borrow 100 bucks again. If I do that 26 times during the year, every two weeks, I've paid $390 in interest on my $100 loan. That's a 390% interest rate. So, okay, $4,800 is not a big number, but if I'm paying four times that in interest, it's not hard to get into trouble. And the other problem, as you alluded to, Blair, is that it's not just a payday loan. I'm borrowing 500 bucks and paying it back in, in two weeks. The payday loan companies now have branched into installment loans mm-hmm. and fast, ca- fast cash loans. So in Ontario now, it is possible to get an installment loan from one of these places for up to $15,000. Now, they can't charge 390% interest because there are federal usury laws that apply all across Canada. The maximum interest rate is 60% under the criminal code, so they charge 59.9%. And again, on $15,000, that's a huge number. So millennials don't have as much total debt as 
you know, a baby boomer, for example, but it is concentrated in these high interest forms of debt, payday loans, credit cards, things like that. So it takes less debt for them to get into trouble. And these payday loan places now have moved online. And guess who's really good with computers and phones and apps and things? Well, it ain't the 80-year-olds, it's the millennials. And so they are more willing to use this form of borrowing and it's more accessible to them now because of the technology and you combine all that and it's a, it's a pretty scary situation. So Doug, we just have like a minute and a half left. And what I'd like to ask you is because we know the situation now, what kind of advice would you give a millennial who's actually concerned and wants to take some action? Well, I would say that, number one, you're not alone, and that's why we are talking about it today, and we've done a, a documentary. You can go on YouTube and, and see that. We've actually presented all this kind of information in that format as well on the Always Michaelis channel. The, my advice is debt problems do not go away on their own. Compounding of interest is great when you've got a savings account or an investment, but it works the other way when you've got debt. So the time to attack debt is now. The beauty of it is, as a millennial, you're still young, you've still got time to recover, so now is the time to reach out to a professional, a licensed insolvency trustee, who are the only professionals in Canada who are licensed to do consumer proposals, which is a way to work out an arrangement with the people you owe money to, to eliminate the debt once and for all, which is the ultimate solution. Okay, excellent. And I want to, just as we're wrapping up, how can someone access your study online? The direct link to it would be joedetter.ca, all one word, but you can also go to our main website, hoys.com, H-O-Y-E-S.com, and, and type in bankruptcy study, Joe Detter, millennials, whatever, and you will find it that way as well. Excellent. We've been talking with Doug Hoyes, who's co-founder of Hoyes, Miklos, and Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. And the reason why he knows so much about this is he's got 30 years as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee. Doug, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's called Reading the Fine Print. And Mm. can we also say that the devil's in the details and that kind of thing? What what you don't know can hurt you. (laughs) Right. Many different expressions. All of those those phrases. Somewhere in your financial agreements, the fine print, you can find it. It's there. And as they say, devil's in the details. Um, so we're talking about credit agreements. Can we first start with a with a definition of what a credit agreement is? I, I, I'm sure it's a very official term, but what does it mm-hmm. mean? It's probably the thing that you don't read uh, when you're given a credit card. Got so it. there's, you know, the cardholder agreement, oh, credit that's agreements. That's like the enormous the eight, sometimes. eight pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah very thing. small, Got small it. print. It's probably the way you treat your iTunes service agreement. Just, you know, run to the right. end and sign it and, and <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that. Right. Um, Click, agree. But you can bet if there's something in there, it's going to protect one party. It's not going to be you. It's probably going to be the other person there. Um, so you want to be aware of what's in the credit agreement because sometimes there are things that can be triggered. And if you don't know that in advance... Um, it can become become quite a surprise to you. So is there an easy way to read 
because I, I believe, I personally believe, and please correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, but I personally believe that they're not designed for me, for mm-hmm. the consumer. Yep. It's filled with legalese exactly. and very official terms, and they are they have to provide that information, mm-hmm. but it but they're not governed as to um, how that information can could be written. Or That's right. It's written to withstand a lawsuit. Basically, right. it's written to stand up in court and say that they've covered all the bases. Um, but no, there's no you know requiring for them to translate that into you know base basic, non-jargon, um, something that everybody can understand. Non-legal, non-accountant, mm-hmm. non-licensed insolvency trustee right. words. But what we want to do today is to say, here's a few issues to be aware of. And Good. you've always got the right to phone up the bank and say, you know what, I don't quite understand this. Why don't you explain to me exactly what this means or to ask about this type of a provision um, and just see are any of these things applying. Okay, so, so what do we pay attention to? Yeah, so a couple things. So even on the simple credit card agreements, there can be some hidden fees in the form of introductory, low interest rate or membership costs or convenience fee charges. So you really want to take a look at what's defined on each of those categories. So if there's an introductory interest rate, um, credit card companies are very popular for doing balance transfers where you know it might be a very low interest rate, but just for a period of time. Yeah. It might be just for six months or for 12 months, and it might be just on the balance that you've transferred in, not on your new purchases. And what you really want to look at is what's the trigger for you to lose that introductory interest rate. And sometimes it's as simple as you were late on one payment. Okay. In some cardholder agreements, you forfeit this interest rate if you're late on a single payment to us during the term. So you can imagine if you moved a big balance over to a credit card thinking you had a lower rate um, and a payment bounces because your pay came late because of a stat holiday or something like that, and then you've lost that introductory interest rate. So you want to be careful with that. Um, you also want to be careful, are there going to be membership charges, you know, annual fees or different things like that, mm-hmm. or convenience fee charges? You know, what's it going to cost if you need to get a statement reprinted or if you're going to use another ATM? Oh. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. statement reprinted. Yeah. Or if you do e-banking, this is, I learned this recently, uh, There, and I wanted uh, some sort of a, a record of the checks that I had mm-hmm. deposited through e-bank. Now, I've got the hard checks, yep. that's not a problem, but there was another piece of it that I wanted to know if they had, or if they had a copy of the check that I had taken a picture of and mm-hmm. sent, and um, it would have cost me, was it over $25 right. to get that? Yeah. And I thought, forget it. Yeah. I'm just going to I'm just going to rely on my memory that mm-hmm. I actually looked after that properly. Well, and now that you know it, you'll keep copies for yourself and, and save, save oh, the yeah. cost there. Oh, yeah. You know, another thing that people aren't aware of is sometimes there's a special interest rate and it's not the special that you want. It's if you default on a payment, suddenly you're put into an accelerated category and your interest rate of 19% might go to 25 or 29%. So you want to look for that as well. You know, what happens if I'm late or if, uh, if I you know miss something on the card? Am I suddenly going to have my interest rate really increased? Right. Oof. So what are the other kinds of uh, debt that we need to be cautious of when it comes to this stuff? Yeah, so if you're getting a loan or a line of credit, you really need to be clear, are you pledging an asset as collateral? And sometimes it's very straightforward. If you're getting a home equity line of credit, you know you're putting your house up. If it's a right. mortgage or a car loan, you know exactly the assets that's there. Um, but I've seen some recent um, types of loans where sometimes they're you know instant cash types of loans, and they actually do take security over your vehicle. And the clients that I've seen, they didn't read enough of the fine print to see that if they default 
on a single payment on this type of a loan, the lender has the right to go and impound their vehicle, charge them storage, and not give the vehicle back until the whole loan is paid in full. Wow. So they might default on the first payment, and they're going to have to pay 12 months of their car being seized from them. And that would be, uh, and that kind of fine print wouldn't be outlined to say, oh, if this happens, if mm-hmm. this happens, if this happens, and it's part of the application or part of the process, this is in the back with the small writing. Oh, man. It's all there because I had the client bring it into me. I'm like, okay, I can see this. And again, legally, I do this all day, every day. So I know what to look for. Um, But the person said, well, that wasn't explained to me. They said, oh, if you miss payments, you know, we'll work with you, so on and so forth. Um, And the client had brought it into me. I thought, you know, are they in cahoots with the tow yard and the storage yard? And I don't know anything about that. I'm not going to speculate. But, you know, really it falls to the individual to self-educate because most of the time people don't have the ability to run things through a lawyer. Right. So I know payday loans, I, I know what your position mm-hmm. is on them and there and there there's a reason why or there's a number of reasons why you are uh, very concerned about payday loans but there's hidden costs there's yeah. hidden costs with them yeah you know generally the cost that you're going to pay it's about $15 for a $100 loan and that's what's sent set in the government um, regulations but there's a ton of different incidental fees you know $20 for a bounced payment um, all of these things allow a, a payday loan to really go outside of the criminal code of Canada so the criminal code of Canada sets the maximum interest rate at 60%. But if you actually add up the cost and fees of a payday loan on everything, it's almost 400% of interest is what you're actually paying. And it's all in the fees. You won't see that if you just look at the interest rate. And of course, people that are accessing payday loans, they're in a, in a particular situation where they, you know, it's a, it's a, it would, could be a panic, a real desperate kind of situation mm-hmm. that you're accessing that service yeah. and just being taken, t- uh, taken advantage of terribly. Mm-hmm. You really really got to be careful. The latest one that I saw, and this is just this week, Elaine, and I couldn't believe it, uh, was the lady was signing for a payday loan and she came in to see me and I was explaining, you know, you don't need to be worried. They're threatening they're going to garnish your wages, but they'd have to sue you first. And I'm going to be able to help you before that happens. And she said, well, no, I think they got me to sign something that I gave them authority to seize wages. And I thought, well, no, I've never seen that before. She actually showed me a one-page agreement that not written in legalese, but basically, I don't know if it'd ever be binding, but it said, you know, I, client, give you payday loans, the ability to go straight to my HR department and take any missed payments, and I'm responsible for all of those costs, whatever it costs my HR to process it as oh well. Oh, my gosh. And I said to her, you know, well, why did you sign this? She said, well, I needed the loan, and it was all pretty quick, and no one really explained to me what I was signing. Right. So you've got people contracting out of some provisions. You know, the whole point that you have to be sued is to protect you and to give you some extra time. Um, But if you sign an agreement because you're not reading the fine print, sometimes you're frustrating that type of protection. I can't help but but think these people are being so taken advantage of because of their Mm -hmm. situations, right? I feel that way. Like Like your client who, you know... I needed the money. I mm-hmm. needed the money. Yeah, it's it's the lender of last resort. It's the easiest funding to get are these payday lenders, but it's not one. It's typically four, five, ten different payday loans. They just you know start to multiply because you need to take the next one to pay off the first one. Exactly. So um, can we skip to the question, what are some of the areas you, you'd suggest that extra diligence is needed when it comes to what you do? Yeah, I think a couple of things. So, you know, one quickly is I've seen something around brokered loans lately, and that's where you basically, you think you're getting a loan, but you're paying a broker a large fee to arrange the loan, which when you actually add all the fees up, you're paying well more than 60% interest. So be careful if you see the term brokered loans. But I think the biggest area, Elaine, where there's still huge misconceptions of people making mistake is when they're seeking debt advice. So you've really got to understand if you're dealing with a credit counselor, if you're dealing with a trustee, if you're negotiating directly with a collection agent, 
make sure you understand everything that's at play, the person's objectives. Um, a collection agency is never going to make you aware of everything that's going to make you better off at their expense. Uh, a credit counselor may have different objectives than you, given their funding model comes from the bank. The only person you can reasonably trust to give you independent, unbiased advice in your financial options is a licensed insolvency trustee. You guys are federally regulated. There's nothing that you can do that isn't already set out mm-hmm. very clearly. Um, and if you want more information, uh, Sands & Associates has a great website. It's sands-trustee.com. It's filled with great questions and answers. Uh, pretty much everything you could possibly want to know, you can access in there, or you can give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, and get that consultation, that first consultation, as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. In studio with us uh, is Cody Reedman. He's an insolvency, restructuring, and litigation lawyer, practices as a sole practitioner in North Vancouver at Reedman Law. Cody is a grad of U of Victoria, Faculty of Law, was called to the bar in 2016 after articling with a very well-respected insolvency lawyer in the Tri-Cities. So bankruptcy, insolvency, that is Cody's practice. He represents and advises folks, uh, small and medium-sized businesses in a wide range of matters, uh, all coming out of insolvency legislation. He has uh, a lot of experience in personal bankruptcy matters, representing people in contentious, non-contentious discharges from bankruptcy. We're going to be talking about CRA discharges in this segment, which I'm kind of really interested in hearing about because I don't, the word discharge is a is one of those terms that you guys are very mm-hmm. familiar with, but it's not sort of a regular term that I'm, uh, that I know what it is. So that I, I look forward to hearing about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> finding out what that is. We all learn on this show, don't <laughs> we? We do. <laughs> Probably me more than anyone at this point. Um, so Cody, let's just first start. Uh, Blair, if it's okay with you, mm-hmm. if Cody just talks a little bit about your practice? Um, When should clients reach out to you and what do you do for them? Uh, Well, certainly. uh, Well, thank you for having me on, first of all. Uh, Generally, when clients should reach out to me is probably uh, to be preventative. When people are experiencing uh, distress or challenges paying their taxes, they should reach out to a professional, whether it's a lawyer, a tax advisor, and a licensed insolvency trustee to talk about their options. Uh, generally, in insolvency proceedings, people tend to retain me or reach out very, very late in the process. Oh, usually, interesting. Usually, once they've already filed for bankruptcy, they've gone through the initial uh, term of that bankruptcy, and they end up with a filed opposition from the Department of Justice representing Canada Revenue. And at that stage, they typically need legal representation to assist them with navigating uh, a resolution and filed opposition means they're fi- rejecting it. Well, it means uh, a formal opposition. It's it's a very small document, uh, short document, which is filed with the court. And yes. what it has the effect of is lodging a formal opposition to the court, the superintendent of bankruptcy, and to the trustee, uh, saying, "Hey, we don't believe that you should be fully forgiven for your debts." Got it. Okay, thank yeah, you so for that. Where we talk a lot, Elaine, in, in this show about you know bankruptcy could be nine months uh, yes. if you're low income. It could be twenty one months if you're not low income, but that's based on nobody objecting. 
losing at the end of the bankruptcy. And what's Cody saying is that objection or that opposition, um, that's where it means you don't finish bankruptcy on time. It means we've got to go to court. Um, and Cody, your practice is helping people if they get to that step of going to court and being represented. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. And usually once the, the opposition or that uh, objection comes in, the bankruptcy discharge hearing is just adjourned generally, which means that it's uh, just put off to an, another point in time for the bankrupt uh, to or to hire counsel to bring their own application to get discharged. But sometimes if that doesn't happen in a timely matter, people just uh, stay in bankruptcy um, until the court orders otherwise. Oh, okay. All mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I've had some people come in to try to get help with a current debt problem. When we look, it's actually for the last 20 years, they've been bankrupt but didn't quite know it because they had an opposition to discharge and they didn't deal with it. They didn't go to court. They didn't hire a counsel. They just thought, oh, I'll just kind of forget about it. But unfortunately, the courts don't forget. <laughs> no, and so you, you can be in bankruptcy until you deal with it. That's correct. There's no limitation period when it comes to uh, a bankruptcy discharge. Wow. Uh, I've had people over 30 years in bankruptcy <gasps> seeking a discharge uh, yeah. in order to deal with their more recent debts. So. It's a, it's a reality. Wow. And Cody, can we talk for a bit about the legal background of, of CRA debts? Um, you know, how are CRA debts treated in an insolvency, in a bankruptcy, or, or in a consumer proposal proceeding? Yes, absolutely. So uh, CRA debts, um, especially in a bankruptcy, they can sometimes have special features uh, different from, say, credit card debts or lines of credit. Uh, if somebody has, and this is the language from the leg- legislation, which is uh, personal tax debts, uh, of $200,000 or more, and it constitutes 75% or more of the, the liabilities in that bankruptcy. Of their total debts they're filing bankruptcy for, okay. Yep. That's correct. Uh, then the person is precluded, they're not entitled to an absolute discharge, meaning they don't get full forgiveness for their debts. Uh, in those stages, uh, a person then, well, the court is left with a handful of choices, which is one, to refuse the discharge outright, which is very uncommon. The second is to suspend the discharge for such time it sees fit. It might be one day, it might be six months or years. And what does that mean to suspend it? It means the bankruptcy just continues on for a period of time? Does the person have to do anything, pay anything? Um, It it depends, uh, but typically the person remains in bankruptcy, continues to have to file uh, income and expense sheets, uh, provide those to the trustee, will usually have to uh, continue to pay surplus income. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if your listeners have uh, been exposed to surplus income. We talked about it a bit over Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... And, and so those are some of the general features with a suspended uh, discharge. But more typically, you would see a uh, conditional order of discharge of some kind, which is that the court has broad discretion to order that the bankrupt be discharged subject to terms the, the court sees fit. Usually, that's a percentage of the tax debt having paid uh, that needs to be paid to the trustee to benefit the creditors. So if someone comes in to see myself as a licensed insolvency trustee, I know if it's more than $200,000 of personal income tax debt, and that's more than three quarters of their total debts, they can't finish bankruptcy on time. It won't be nine months or it won't be 21 months. They'll have to go to court. And then what you're saying, Cody, is the court could either choose to refuse the discharge, which I've never seen that happen. Have you seen that? I've seen it in... um more serious cases, yeah, usually with mul- abuse, multiple bankruptcies normally, either okay. three or more bankruptcies typically. So they might say, well, you're just not getting discharged because we don't think that, you know, we think you'll be back again. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Uh, <laughs> or they could choose to suspend the discharge, which is the person spends, you know, maybe it's as little as a day or it could be, I've seen three, six, 12 month suspensions. Maybe you've seen longer than that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Exactly. And sometimes yeah. those suspensions and those conditional orders can run concurrently as well. Oh, okay. And then the third part, I think that's where people are most afraid of um, is, okay, so this condition 
additional order. So that means there's going to be some amount that I'm going to be ordered to pay back. Uh, but going into the bankruptcy, they've got no way of knowing what that is. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Uh, again, these... Uh, these sort of uh, tax debts and dealing with tax debts, especially in bankruptcy proceedings, uh, you end up with these really fact-specific situations on how much needs to be paid at the end of the day or or may need to be paid at the end of the day. Um, the courts in British Columbia specifically have a wide variety of decisions, anywhere from 20% to 70% of the, the tax debt would have to be payable to the trustee as a condition of discharge. Now, there, of course, are exceptions to that. Those aren't firm fence posts that people have to, you know, you're either going to pay 70% or 20%. Sometimes, if there's sympathetic situations, people can pay significantly less, anywhere from 1% to 5%, potentially. There are also cases uh, which are more serious where people may have to pay something between 70 to 100%, depending. So what kind of factors do the, the courts take into consideration when they're kind of setting those terms? Because obviously it's night and day, you know, down to 1% up to, you know, 70%. So got to think the person at 70%, sophisticated individual, ability to pay, knew what he or she was doing, and maybe the opposite is down at that, the 1% or 2%. But can you help us understand what kind of factors would someone, you know, be basically considered? Absolutely, and thank you for raising that. In terms of the, the more serious factors where someone would have to pay towards the high end, you, this would be people who you know would have the ability to pay, but are intentionally remaining underemployed. You, you know, perhaps transfers of property prior to bankruptcy, uh, and then. Uh, the court will also look to conduct prior to bankruptcy and look at the t- how the taxes, w- uh, the tax debt actually rose. Is this a matter of somebody who is unsophisticated in business, has a grade eight education, or is this somebody who was, you know, fairly sophisticated, failed to file tax returns for five, ten, fifteen years, mm-hmm. and routinely refused to? to pay the taxes while living a really nice lifestyle, going on nice vacations, uh, buying nice clothes. Those are mm. things the court will look at. Yeah, and I can imagine just my sense of fairness. I think we're all feeling the same. Well, that person deserves you know, to, <laughs> to have to pay something because we're all paying something here, right? Uh, absolutely. Hmm. And then on the lower end of the spectrum, the court will look uh, towards a, a number of different factors, which, you know, again, the sophistication of the person, which is, you know, what's what's their previous exposure to business. And and this is uh, another area, which is that if they were duped in somehow into getting mm-hmm. the tax debt, mm-hmm. which is sometimes you have less scrupulous individuals ask, you know, spouses to be the heads of a company, oh, yes. and they end up getting the the huge uh, burden of the tax debt by virtue of being a director. I've seen right. that again and again. Yeah, yeah, very unsophisticated. Often the the wife, unfortunately, where the husband right. works in the business, and the wife is a director of this corporation, and comes in to see me with massive CRA debt. And I say, well, how did you even incur this? Well, I'm not sure. It was my husband's business. I was just by convenience on there. So That's right. I've definitely seen those a few times. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I I, I think. You know, most people who work in this area are sympathetic to people in those situations. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and though, and then there's going to be facts all the way in between. And so it's a matter of, you know, especially on a discharge hearing, the court kind of sifting through the facts and and weighing everything and trying to, on the one hand, balance the the bankrupt's right to rehabilitation mm-hmm. through the bankruptcy process. But on the other hand, uh, people shouldn't get off lightly. They want to make sure that there's uh, sufficient enough deterrence that people have to pay something at the end of the day. And just in, in our last couple of yeah, minutes please. here, Cody, I wonder, do you have any examples you can talk about, just some recent cases, um, not necessarily involving you, but something you're aware of where um, here's the situation and here's what kind of terms were, were worked out in the end? Yes, absolutely. So I, I I had a chance to review some of the recent cases in British Columbia. There's a recent decision of Re Thandi, a 
2017 decision of the BC Supreme Court, uh, which was a contested discharge uh, for bankruptcy hearing in 2017. Now, in that case, Mr. Thandy uh, was in his late 50s. He was an immigrant, and he had incurred a substantial uh, CRA debt of approximately um, a substantial CRA debt. And he had counsel, and going through a number of the factors, the court did consider uh, the various laws applicable to people with high income tax debts. Um, Mr. Thandy was willing to pay something, uh, but he was unable to, of course, pay the entirety of, of the debt. At the end of the day, the court went through his, uh, Mr. Thandy's circumstances, including the fact that he was 57 years old, a grade 8 edu education, and had immigrated to Canada. And the court, it appears from the decision, was uh, found that he had no significant assets, but also had paid some money before bankruptcy from the sale of the house towards the tax debt. And as a result of, of just going through the circumstances and weighing the fairness, the court ordered that uh, Mr. Thandy had to pay uh, $40,000 uh, to his trustee, which was equal to about 5% of the tax debt as a condition of discharge. So doing the math, there's about an $800,000 tax debt? Uh, yes, that's that's right. It's, okay. It was well, about seven or 800000 uh, So, you okay, know... So 40 at the end of the day, that's that's reasonable, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. and keep in mind, too, you know, some of these decisions, uh, when we're dealing with the taxes, we see a final number at the end of the day. There's substantial interest and penalties, which can mm -hmm. be uh, sometimes 50 to 75% of the actual uh, tax debt on paper. Cody, uh, just before we wrap up, can you give me your website? Certainly. So that's www.readmanlaw.com. Readmanlaw.com. If you're interested, need some help, Cody's the guy to go see. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I want to mention, for information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to the website sands-trustee.com, or better yet, call 1-800-661-3030 for, for a consultation and to find an office near you. So, in February of this year, the provincial government announced the elimination of interest charges on BC student loans, which is was a huge announcement, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because we we know what um, what student loans cost these days, and the yep. interest is what can take people down, right? Because mm -hmm. it just takes forever. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is that enough? The province recently announced that it would eliminate interest charges on the loans, as well as over-awards, risk-sharing, and guaranteed loans, effective February 19th. So how big a problem are student loans for students in British Columbia? Yeah, and from my perspective, Elaine, there's not a day that goes by that I don't touch that issue in some way. So, you know, usually it's people coming to see me and sometimes they very recently graduated um, and they're just having a tough time finding first employment. Quite often it's folks that didn't finish a program, they've still got this debt that's hanging around or have been graduated for 10 years or more. Exactly. And, and they've really had a tough time. Maybe they're working in the field or not working in the field or sometimes they're unable to work at all due to health issues. Um, but student loans is one of those debts where you can't wait it out. There's generally no statute of limitations. Uh, the government's going to 
to come for their money regardless of circumstances. So it can be an issue that can cause people a lot of stress. And I think it also gets in the way if somebody's thinking about going back to school to bettering their education or trying a new venue, which mm-hmm. we all know we're supposed to be super flexible in these yeah. days and know that we're going to have a couple of different careers. That's what they say. Um, it, it's You'd look at a student loan the student loan as a thing that you'd have to um, access, Mm -hmm. and it can be pretty daunting. Oh, it could be a barrier completely that causes, I'm sure, a lot of people not to pursue their passion because they're very worried about coming out the other side with a very large student loan that can take a long time to pay off if it's possible to pay it off at all. And that's to the loss of the workforce, I think, Mm -hmm. in the province in a big way. So what kind of savings is the interest change look like? So let's go through it. Yeah, so in the 2019 budget, it said the average graduate is going to save $2,300 in interest over a 10-year repayment period. And they said that's based on a combined federal and provincial student loan balance of $28,000. And that seems reasonable to me, that balance. I definitely see higher, lower, but but that's definitely right in in the ballpark, which is is kind of shocking that you're going to finish, you know, your four-year degree or whatever, owing nearly $30,000 before you get to your your first day of work. It's uh, it's unimaginable for somebody like me. Yeah. And and if you think about the 2,300 sounds good, but let's bring it back to reality. That's what we always do here. Um, It's 2,300 average savings, divide that by the 120 months, which is in 10 years, what does that work out to? $19.16 per month of actual impact. So it's a welcome benefit for sure. um, But on a monthly basis, that's kind of negligible. Like what's that, a a few coffees a week over the the space of a month there? Yeah, it's not even a meal, right? If you Mm -hmm. were to go out. Yeah, and if you think about the cost of living in BC, um, the housing crisis that we've got, um, and then the ability that people have to earn good enough wages over, you know, a summer term or something else like that to try to, you know, defray the cost, uh, it can really put a very tough situation onto folks. And it's, this isn't real fear mongering either. I mean, this is real hard data. We know mm-hmm. what kind of uh, environment we're living in, what kind of society or what kind of area we're living in in this part of the province, at least. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly expensive. Yeah, and to have that. Hang- hanging over as well as all the other stuff. It's pretty insurmountable, or at least it would feel it like feel that. feel that way, yeah. So Sands and Associates pulled a group of students as part of the BC Student Finances Study a couple of years ago. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that. So this is just going back to 2013. Yeah, this, this was fascinating. So we sent a, a team of pollsters out to campus uh, at UBC and Simon Fraser. Uh, we wanted to query some students about a, a few things, you know, what were their expectations about wages, about student loans, and things like that. Uh, and we found a, a few key insights there that are still very relevant. Um, so, you know, a couple things is first off, we found the majority of students, uh, they were parent-funded or at least heavily parent-funded. So, you know, a lot of people had student loans, but they were really depending on the bank of mom and dad, so to speak, you know, to make ends meet, either living at home or, or not. Um, and that obviously creates the situation, well, what if you don't have that resource exactly. uh, of mom and dad? You know, the the student loan might be maxed out, and then you're looking to unsecured credit, the lines of credit, the credit cards and things like that, if your parents aren't able to help you. Yeah. Um, a bit concerning, too, was we found 22% of students that we polled said they used credit cards for the majority of their daily purchases. So majority of their daily purchases going on to credit. Now, some of them thought they're you know, outsmarting the system a bit because they pay everything off in full every month and they're just getting the loyalty points. And okay, I can buy that a little bit, but that's a bit risky. Um, the whole point of using a credit card every time is that becomes an ingrained behavior and that can be a bit tough to break. Um, and it's been 
proven again and again that psychologically it's way more difficult to part with cash, to hand over, you know, the blue bill and the green bill and get no change back, as opposed to just tap the plastic and there's oh, yeah. one second and then you just move on, you hear the nice little beep and that's that. And tapping makes it even easier. I mean, I remember in the in the in the old days you had mm-hmm. to you know sign yeah. the, sign the receipt. Oh, the carbon back and forth. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. you had to sign the receipt. At least that was a physical thing. Yeah. Now, I mean, I'm a big fan of the tap. I love that. Mm-hmm. But it's so fast and it's you're done. Oh, indeed. So, you know, we found, so students are heavily parent, uh, funded by their parents. Yes. They're using a lot of credit cards for their day-to-day purchases. But then we also asked, well, what are their expectations for earning after graduation? You know, are they in line with the reality? Um, and maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise, but their expectations were completely out of line with the actual reality of what we think they're going to face. Hmm. Um, so when we asked students, nearly three quarters of all the students surveyed, so 73%, anticipated they would be earning a salary greater than $50,000 uh, five years after graduation. Now, that's not saying they're going to earn six figures, you know, $50,000 five years after graduation. Sounds reasonable expectation. Um, But the reality is that in BC, the median employment income of British Columbians was $27,500. So half of the population um, in 2016 actually earned less than roughly $28,000. So they think they're obviously going to be in the the top half by a pretty big margin. Right. Um, And the total median employment of British Columbia families was just under seven. $70,000 so of a few income earners put together. So we thought it was a bit out of whack that each student or at least 73% of students thought they would earn way more than the median income just within five years of graduation. Now this next part, I mean, you've already really said this, the year 2018 BC Consumer Debt Study that you guys did Mm -hmm. uh, found that almost 5% of the people uh, polled claimed the primary cause of their debt was student loans or student lines of credit. So Mm -hmm. we sort of talked about that in the very beginning. Um, and is, are we exclusive? Is British Columbia, are we kind of exclusive to the rest of the country in that? No, absolutely not. So okay. it's very consistent across the country that, you know, student loans are a very large problem um, amongst the millennial generation specifically. Nationally. Uh, nationally, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's to the point where there's been some recent studies have shown that the fastest growing cohort of people filing insolvencies is actually the millennials. And a big piece of that is student loans. The most common debt typically that that millennials have is a student loan. Okay, so let's go to the hopeful category. What kind of hope can we offer these people? What are the, you know, the things that that somebody could do Mm -hmm. to try to get out of that situation. Yeah, and I'm happy we're we're turning the page because it's not all doom and gloom. There absolutely is ways that you can deal with your student loans, but you have to be aware of them. Uh, One thing the government does, which I really, really disagree with, is they hire private collectors. So uh, if you're going more than three months delinquent on your student loans, oftentimes you're going to be talking to a third-party collection agent, often paid on commission, and they're not going to be nice to deal with. They're not going to tell you all the ways that you can potentially deal with the debt. They're just going to try to get you to make some payments because that's how they get paid. But what you can actually do to deal with the debt is student loans becomes just like every other debt once you've been out of school at least seven years. So if you're struggling early on in your career, you still have options with your student loan. You know, we can still come in to see a trustee. We can get you some temporary relief. But to really deal with the issue, you have to have graduated, have really made a good, good faith effort to try to earn income. And if you're still experiencing hardship after you've been out of school for seven years, a personal bankruptcy or even better, a consumer proposal can eliminate a student loan debt. 
most of the time people end up paying off maybe a half of the debt, a third of the debt, maybe a quarter, something like that in a consumer proposal. And that can give them a new lease on life. They can turn things around. And you said seven years. And so that's kind of a magic number when it comes to student loans. Exactly. Yeah. So in the law, there's a provision that says if it's been more than seven years, the student loan's the same as everything else. Uh, There's a smaller provision. If it's been more than five years since you were a student, you can prove hardship. Potentially, you can deal with the debt. But if it's less than the five to seven years, um, any relief that you can get through a trustee, yes, we can stop collection calls and things like that. But the government will still have the right to collect if it hasn't been five years since you were out of school. This is easy to start to get a hand on by going to see uh, Sands and Associates because because they're licensed insolvency trustees, they are legally allowed to give you uh, either help you through a bankruptcy, a consumer proposal, or they'll just sit down with you and answer your questions. Sands-trustee.com. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.